Hello, and welcome to Parsha Lab. I am not Rabbi David Foreman. And I am not Imu Shalev. This is actually Rifki Stern, the producer of Parsha Lab. And I'm Ami Silver, one of the Aleph Beta team. Ami, I think this is actually your first time being on the Parsha Lab podcast, if I'm not mistaken. It sure is, Rifki. I'm very excited to have you. How do you feel? I'm excited, you know, because it's cool to produce material, it's cool to write scripts and put stuff out there, but here we get to really get into the act of learning together and us sharing that with our listeners. So I'm excited yeah. for the opportunity. Well, I'm also excited about that. And I'm especially excited because, Ami, you've prepared something that I haven't even gotten a chance to look at yet. So I'm pretty excited for us to explore this together. Okay, sure, Rivki. So this week, we're going to be reading Parshat Bahar and Bechukotai. It's one of those double Parshas that come up a few times a year. And um, if you take a, a real cursory glance at these Parshiot, it seems like there's a couple really main central themes that keep popping up, stuff having to do with the land of Israel and uh, special laws that have to do with the seven-year cycle called Shemitah, the 50-year cycle called Yovel, which we'll get into. And when I was looking through the Parsha, I just kind of noticed a few things that jumped out at me, um, a few ideas that seem to relate to other themes and other parts of the Torah, even something that has to do specifically with this time of year, this season that we're in. So that's what I want to look at with you today. So we're going to start at the very beginning of Parshat Bahar. It's in Leviticus chapter 25. Could just start reading from the beginning. Would you mind taking a look at it, Rifki? Sure, absolutely. By Daber Hashem El Moshe Bahar Sinai Lemor, and God spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai, saying, Daber El Bnei Israel Martalehem, speak to the the children of Israel and tell them, Kitavo El Aretz, when you come to the land, Asher Ninotenachem, the land that I'm going to give you, Veshavta Aretz Shabbat Lashem, then the land will um, keep some sort of Sabbath, some sort of Shabbat, and it will be a Shabbat for me, God. Okay, great. So what you just read in broad strokes, this is something that God told Moses at Mount Sinai. And it says, go tell the people that when they arrive in the land of Israel, they're going to keep a Sabbath for God, but not the Sabbath that we're used to. What's different about this Sabbath, Rifki? Well, I think the next verse tells us, right? Sheshanim tizrasadecha. For six years, you will work in the field. You will sow the field. And for those six years, you're also going to be pruning your vineyards. And you also gather in the produce. On the seventh year, there will be this Sabbath of Sabbaths for the land. This Sabbath for God. And you're not going to work your field. And you will not prune your vineyard. So unlike you know the, the Shabbat that we have, which is the seventh day, this Shabbat for the land will be the seventh year. Exactly. And and there's another parallel here, which is our Shabbat, the standard Sabbath that we know is six days you work, seventh day you don't work. Here, six years you work the land. The seventh year, you don't touch the land. You don't prune. You don't plant. It also actually says here the land is going to rest. The Shabbat is going to be La'aretz, Shabbat Shabbaton La'aretz, a Sabbath for the earth, a Sabbath for God. It's interesting. We think of Shabbat as something for us. It's our desisting from work and it's our resting. But this land, even though it's us not working the land, the language that the Torah gives us for the Shabbos is that it is a Shabbos for the land. The, the land is sort of the, the active player here. And we are the, the sort of passive objects on the side. It's interesting language. Exactly. It's a, it's a Sabbath that belongs to the land itself. Now, I want you to jump ahead now to verse 8. 
there's actually another step other than this six years to seventh year cycle, which in our common parlance is known as Shemitah. That seventh year is called Shemitah, withholding yourself from the land. There's another cycle that, that we hear about here, something beyond the Sabbath that we're about to read about. So jump into verse eight with me, if you don't mind. We're going to count seven of these Shemitah cycles. Sheva shanim, sheva pamim, seven, almost like seven times seven. Vayu lecha yimei sheva shabtoch hashanim. It's a lot of repetitive language, it seems, right? There will be these days of seven Sabbaths of years. Teisha arbaim shana, every 49 years. Again, I'm like, it feels like, okay, I know my multiplication tables. Okay, and then what happens? Vavarta shofar trua. And you will make a proclamation of, of some sort with the blast of the shofar, uh, the trua the of the shofar, in the seventh month, in the tenth day. And then suddenly it's telling us that there's going to be Yom Kippur, right? So we went through, we went, it's interesting, we went through the laws of Shemitah, and then we also mentioned Yovel, and then the next Pasuk tells us immediately, oh, and you're going to create this proclamation, and there's going to be a Yom Kippur. Right, so, so you, uh, you threw in a word there that we haven't gotten to yet, Yovel. Spoiler, because it's continuing. Spoiler alert, as you'll see in a few (laughs) verses, that's the name of this year after you count all these cycles. But before we even get there, I want to just focus in on verse 8 for a minute. Count for yourself seven Sabbaths of years. And that, that phrase repeats itself, Sheva Shabtot Hashanim. Torah could have very easily said, count for yourself seven years, seven times. But it calls it seven Sabbaths of years, seven times. So there's the thing of counting seven times seven, like you said, Rifki, really weird. Why are you telling me seven and another seven is seven times and then do that seven times? It's 49. We all know our multiplication tables. Um, but there's another question I want to ask you. Where else in the Torah do you hear very similar language of counting seven, seven times? What does that remind you of? I think that the initial thing that jumps off the page for me is this this time that we're in right now, actually, between Pesach and Shavuos, where we count, we are, we're meant to, for seven total weeks, we're supposed to count the Omer every single day. Right, exactly. And it's not just, well, you have you have to happen to know about that in order to, to see that parallel. If you were to read just Two chapters before here, we hear that exact language. So I want to take a look at that text with you, Rifki, because it seems to me that there's a lot of dialogue between that text, two two chapters earlier in, in Leviticus 23, and what we're reading about right here in Leviticus 25. And I think maybe it's trying to tell us something. All so right, let's see. Open up to 23, if you don't mind, just flip back a few pages. Mm-hmm. And let's begin just right at the heart of it, verse 15. And you should count for yourselves from the, the day after Shabbat, which we uh, as descendants or spiritual descendants of the Pharisees interpret as after the first day of uh, Passover. From the day that you brought the Omer offering, this uh, special korban that we bring. Seven weeks after until the entire thing uh, is sort of complete. Okay, so I love that you just said seven weeks after. Because it didn't exactly say seven weeks, did it? Yeah, I was, I was filling say? in the blanks, but you're right. You're, you're making a normal translation, everybody. Anyone yeah. who reads this would make that same translation. But there's a very specific word that's used there. What, what does it say? Seven what's? Sheva Shabbatot. We're counting seven, seven Shabbatot, seven Sabbaths. And what did we see over there in Vayikra Kafhe in, in chapter yeah. 25? Yeah, Sheva Shabbatot Shanim. So yeah, 
Shabbatot, for all intents and purposes, it means weeks because for the Torah, a Shabbat is a week. That's the mm-hmm. seven-day cycle. But when you jump into chapter 25 and it's called Shabbatot of years, all of a sudden Shabbatot can't really mean weeks, can it? Right. There must be something sort of bigger within the theme of Shabbat that implies that it isn't just weeks, but it's some sort of Shabbat identity. Some kind of sabbatical cycle, I think. And and we're seeing back there a sabbatical cycle of years, and we're seeing back here sabbatical cycle of counts of seven. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, obviously, if you're counting seven times seven over there in the years, how many years are you counting up? You end up with 49 years. 49 years. Thank you. And and obviously <laughs> here, if you're counting seven weeks and seven Shabbatot, seven times, how many days are you going to count up to? Same. You get 49 days. Okay. You get 49 days. Now I'm so good at this. Now, <laughs> your third grade math teacher would be very proud, Rifki. Seriously. Now, you know, let's jump back to chapter 25 for a minute and let's see what happens after you count those 49 years. I want us to pick up at verse 10. Sure. V'kidash tem et shnat ha-chamishim shana, and you should make kadosh, make holy, the 50th year. Ukratem dror ba'aretz l'chol yoshveha. And you should create some sort of, um like, liberty, I guess, like the Statue of Liberty we think of. Uh, but you should proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all its inhabitants. Yovel hi tiyelachem. And it will be a yovel for all of you. V'shavtem ish el achuzato. And you all return to your achuzat, your ancestral land possession. V'ish el mishpachto tashuvu. And you all return, each man will return to his family. So just to say that in regular English and explain what that <laughs> means, that we're all going to return to our achuzah, this land holding and return to our families, simply stated on, on this 50th year, after the shofar is blown on Yom Kippur, and we proclaim it, we proclaim liberty throughout the land. What does liberty mean? It means that each person will return to their achuzah, literally their, their holding. What, what that means is that the ancestral land that was initially inherited by the tribes who entered Israel in the times of Joshua, right? The land was split up according to the, to, to the 12 tribes, and each tribe got their tribal holding. Each family within that tribe got their pr- piece of property. So over time, you, you start building, building a society, you build, you build up your business, and at different times, people trade property. What's happening in this 50th year, every person is going back to the place that their family initially owned in the land of Israel when they arrived. What that means is that each individual is going to return to their own family. Any person who's been sold into servitude over these last 50 years is going to be freed and go back to their own family. They're no longer going to be a subordinate member of somebody else's household and family. So we see here that there's a return of land to its rightful owners and people to their own rightful place within their families. Right. It seems like the verse is sort of telling us two extensions of the same idea. So, you know, sometimes in the sort of the natural course of commerce or capitalism, um, you can end up sort of making a trade that maybe isn't so great for you. And you can end up sort of losing your home. And it's a really sad sort of um, idea to think about that sort of ancestral home that was passed down to you from your parents or your grandparents. You can no longer afford it. You need money for other things. You need money to feed your family. You need money to maybe take out a small loan for for a business to try to try your luck at something else. And you could end up selling your land. But what can happen that's even sort of sadder than that is that 
let's say that doesn't work out. Let's say you sell your land and in the end, even after that, you still can't afford to feed your family. You still can't afford to do the things you need to do. That's when you might sadly sell yourself into slavery. You might put yourself in a position where you can do anything to feed your family, including separate yourself from your family. And what happens in the Yovel year is not only do you get your land back, but you get a fresh start in every way. You get to sort of turn back the clock and say, okay, it didn't work out. I was separated from my family. I was separated from my land, but now I get to try again and hopefully be more successful this time. Exactly, Rifki. So that's what's happening in this 50th year. And and in the very next verse, verse 11, we come back to that word, Yovel, Yovel he, shnatachamishim shanati elechem. This time of liberation, this time of freedom, of return to where you rightfully or initially belonged, that's called the year of Yovel. Now I want to ask you something. We saw just now a parallel, kind of almost the same exact words and phrases between counting those seven Shemitah cycles to get to the 50th year of Yovel and counting those seven weekly cycles of the Omer offering. Now, at the end of the Shemitah cycle, you get to Yovel. What do you get to at the end of the Omer offering? You get to Shavuot. You get to the holiday of Shavuos. Exactly, Rifki. So at the at the end of this 49 years, you get to the 50th year, you have this year of liberation, and it's called Yovel. Now, we all hear this word. And if I were to just stop someone on the street, somebody who's read the Torah, who's read the Tanakh, and ask them, what is Yovel? What would they tell me, Rifki? The 50th year. The 50th year. Yovel is the 50th year. But strangely enough, this actually isn't the first time the word Yovel appears in the Torah. The word Yovel actually appears way earlier at a really important event that seems to have nothing to do with counting seven cycles of seven years and getting to a 50th year of liberation. Yovel, I'm trying, I'm racking my brain. I'll give you, I'll give you one other hint, Rifki, because over here in the Yovel count of 50, what is it that ushers in the Yovel year? Oh, I got it. Oh, Ami, thank you for that hint. Basically, what ushers in, just to answer your question, what ushers in the Yovel is the blow of the shofar, right? Is this this exactly. uh, this trua of the ram's horn? And the previous time that we that we heard this language of Yovel was at Har Sinai. It was right before the giving of the Torah when. I could be wrong about this. I'm just kind of driving my memory, but it's when God is telling Moshe how to prepare for the giving of the Torah that's about to happen in three days. And he tells Moshe that the people shouldn't touch the mountain. The people should purify themselves. And what will happen to sort of indicate to the people where they should come up close is that there's going to be this, this yovel, the sound of the shofar. Exactly, Rifki. You got it. Because if, if we go back to the book of Exodus chapter 19, and we look at those verses leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments, there's this whole back and forth. God is saying the mountain is really dangerous. Tell the people to stay away. Moshe goes back a couple times, basically carrying this message between God and the people. Time after time after time, God keeps warning the people, don't come near the mountain. And then we get in verse 13, a very strange phrase. It says, Lo tigabo yad, make sure nobody touches the mountain. They're going to be punished. They'll be stoned. They'll be shot with something. Whether it's a person, whether it's even an animal. Lo no one, no living creature will live if they touch Mount Sinai. At the drawing out of the Yovel, they shall ascend 
the mountain. Yeah, Ami, this is really interesting. I actually, I could be misremembering, but I think a few years ago, Red Foreman actually made a bunch of these connections and was linking together this idea of Omer and Yovel and Shavuos and, and Matan Torah to, to all sort of be connected to each other in, in some sort of linked way. Yes, he did, Rifki, that's right. He drew some some really amazing conclusions from there. For all of you listening, Shavuot's coming up. You might want to check out that course in the coming weeks as you prepare for the holiday. But I want to just focus in on this for a second because it's really strange. When the Yovel is drawn out, they will rise up on the mountain. Now, the common explanation of what Mishocha Yovel means that it's somehow a, a horn blast. Have you heard that before, Rifki? Yes. So you have a horn blast. We, we know that, that at Har Sinai, that at Mount Sinai, there was also a kol shofar, holesh yes. There was also this loud shofar blast. Over, over here in our Parsha in Bahar, we also have the yovel and we have the shofar blast. But what does yovel mean in our Parsha? Does it mean a shofar blast? Does it mean no, a No, it, mean, it means the 50th year. It's totally unrelated, seemingly. It means the 50th year, which we said, two qualities of the 50th year. You return to the place that you've been estranged from, the place you couldn't go to until now for whatever reason. And the other element of the 50th year is that any slave goes free, correct? Yeah, I'm kind of, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm kind of getting the inkling of the direction you're going in, Ami, and stop me if if I'm being a little too presumptuous, but it seems like you're trying to link those two ideas also to, to Matan Torah, to the meeting that the people of Israel have with God at Matan Torah, this idea of both coming back to the land that is really your achuza, which is really sort of your family's birthright, and also coming back to your family itself, reclaiming hmm. your connection to your family. Hmm. So that's interesting, Rafi, because you did pick up on on a direction I was I was I was leading in here, which is it seems like if there's shofar here and shofar there, if there's yovel here and yovel there, maybe those elements of yovel have something to do with with the giving of the Torah. But what's really strange here is. What kind of land return are we talking about here? There is no land. The Torah was given in the wilderness. And what would it mean to go back to your family? The people just left the land of Egypt, right? So, so I mean, Ami, if I can venture a guess, maybe you're, that land, if it is connected here, isn't necessarily meant to be literal. I would imagine that the Ahuza here, even though they are about to go to the land, let, let's imagine that Matan Torah went as expected and there was no sort of a major sinning on the part of the nation of Israel. They would be off to Israel. They would be off to their Ahuza. But uh-huh. imagine if we're talking about Ahuza also, outside of land, the, the Torah itself, this relationship with God that is then claimed by the people of Israel mm. through this connection at Har Sinai, the Torah is our Ahuza that we're returning to, I think, at this point. The connection to God is our Ahuza that we're returning to. And then I think the next part of what it means to sort of come back to your family, the people of Israel really became a nation through the Exodus and through Matan Torah, right? It was a bunch of sort of disconnected tribes, maybe, um, a bunch of sort of people who had did have sort of common ancestors, but I don't know. I think uh, in a lot of ways didn't really think of themselves as a nation in that way. And it's not until sort of the the connection to God as a nation and this idea of uh, of a shared mission and a shared purpose and a shared Torah, which really creates them as one family. There, there seems to be, I'm not exactly sure if I'm articulating it well, but I think there seems to be something there that feels like it has the elements of a chuzah and a family there. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Ami? So I really like what you're saying it's it's not something that i i had really considered but um you know if we even think back to the very beginning of the exodus story god appears to moses at the burning bush and the main message is tell these people i'm the god of their ancestors forefathers 
Right. Return to family. And God also says, and tell them, I'm going to take them out of the land of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Israel, the land dripping with milk and honey that I promised to their ancestors. So it seems like the Exodus was actually aimed towards some kind of Yovel-like experience of going back to the ancestral homeland. And there's one other really cool thing that jumps out at me about this connection, because what actually happened at the Exodus? Before, before I give you the answer, I want you to go back into, into the Ten Commandments. Read the very first of the Ten Commandments. What does it say? They had been slaves, and God took them away from that bondage, took them away from the, the slavery, and made them free again. That's what we do, right, at Yovel. What we do at Yovel is we say, listen, you had a tough time. Maybe you were enslaved. Maybe you were, you didn't have control over your own sort of day-to-day life or your destiny. But now that's over. Now it's Yovel. Now you go back and you get to start again. You are no longer enslaved. Exactly. That's what the Exodus is. The Exodus is slaves being set free. And, and remember the essence of Yovel, Dror Yiev Aretz. We're going to call right. out a liberation in the land. All the slaves are going to go free. And all the people who'd been who'd been estranged from their land are going to go back to their land. Now, I, I actually want to add one more thing here because now that we're looking at this text from Exodus, there's actually another phrase here in Exodus, besides for the word Yovel, that links directly to our chapter, the opening chapter of Parsha Bahar. Over here in these introductory chapters, before God starts talking about stay away from the mountain, and I'm gonna I'm gonna to talk to them and all that. Beginning in chapter 19, verse 4 in Exodus, God's telling Moshe to tell, to tell the, the nation, You all saw what I did to the Egyptians. I lifted you on Kanfin Sharim, the wings of eagles. I've brought you to me. Right? God's basically saying, I took you out of there and, and established this intimate bond with you. And now, If you will listen and hear my voice, Listen to what I say. You're going to guard my covenant. Be my special people. For the entire earth is mine. And interestingly enough, those same exact words show up over here in Parsha Bahar, Leviticus chapter 25. It's later wow. on, for a little further down in the section we were reading before, you get to... Verse 23, God is basically explaining to the people, how are you going to survive leaving the land fallow every seven years? Just imagine getting the mind of a, of a farmer. My whole life, my existence, my family's sustenance relies on me working the land and harvesting it. And you're telling me for a whole year, every cycle of seven years, I have to not touch the land. How am I going to live? How am I going to eat that year? How am I going to eat the next year? How am I going to restart the land for the year after that? God says, don't worry, I'm going to give you a guarantee that the land will give you the produce that you need if you follow my command. The land won't be sold away for all eternity. Because who does the land really belong to? It belongs to God. So even you, you're going to take a year off? Don't sweat it. Don't think it's all about you. Don't think, oh, if I don't plant for a year, there's no way that the trees are going to blossom and the crops are going to grow out of the earth. Who does the land belong to? The land belongs to God. Why? You are gerim and toshavim. You're strangers, you're wanderers, you're tenants. You're my tenants. You happen to be here. 
So there's this really interesting tension here in Shemitah and Yovel between who does the land belong to? Remember what Yovel is? Yovel is, go back to the land that's yours. What's God saying now? The land's not yours, it's mine! Right, it's like he's saying to the people, like, yeah, it's an achuzah, right? An achuzah is something real. It's not just a deed, it's something deeper than that. There's something spiritual, there's something meaningful about it. But don't forget, at the end of the day, there's a deeper ownership, even still, than the achuzah. And that deeper ownership is me. I am the land. And you are so scared of working the land, of owning the land, of this and that. Don't forget that deepest level. It's interesting. I mean, it feels like there's a lot of overlap also to the conversation that Rabbi Foreman and I had last week uh, in the podcast where we were kind of talking about these common themes all seeking to sort of remind us, right, this idea of the man and the omer. And I think fundamentally, one of the, the sort of gentle nudges that God is making with us in the language there is saying, hey, even when you go into the land of Israel, don't forget me. Don't forget that, yes, you're working the land. You should be proud of everything you've done. But everything that happens is in partnership with me. Don't lose me. Don't forget about me. And it seems like there's there's something there also here with the working the land through the six years or through the you know the seven times six years with all of the working that we do still remembering that when we're working and when we're not working god is a partner in all of that and we can't Mm -hmm. do it without him i really like the way you're putting this together rifki and and i think that you mentioned you know god saying giving us all of these different commandments and structures that we don't forget god we don't forget god but i think that there's there, that's the negative way of saying it. Live your life, do the things you have to do, but don't forget. And I think there's actually a a, a deeper message that that we get from this connection between Yovel and Shemitah and Har Sinai, which is not only don't forget, but there's there's a higher ideal that you can reach for, which has to do with living in the land and remaining faithful to God at the same time. Before we go, we we take a look at that. I want to just summarize what we've seen right now. Parshat Bahar. It opens with these, um, sorry, I need to pull it up. Parsha Bahar opens with this description of these six years and the seven years, right? The, the Shemitah cycles that are called a Shabbat of the land. Then we get from the seven-year cycle to seven seven-year cycles leading up to 50 years of Yovel. That's where everybody goes free and everybody goes back to the land that, that's initially theirs. We then looked at what seems to really parallel that same structure just a few chapters earlier in Vayikra chapter 23, where God says to count, again, after Shabbat, which is, as you said, a funny word for Pesach, but we have the Shabbat theme come (laughs) up there, counting out of Shabbat seven times, seven Shabbats to 49, and we get to the 50th. As we said earlier, Rifki, that 50th day, although it's not mentioned here in Parshat Emor, that 50th day is Shavuot, which we commemorate the giving of the Torah, the events of Har Sinai. Well, interestingly enough, we have those parallels again back in Mount Sinai with Yovel, with the Shofar, with people, slaves going free, and with some strange maybe some kind of connection of returning to an ancestral holding or, or land. We also saw that connection with that phrase, li kol ha'aretz, that central message seemingly of God saying both at Mount Sinai and both when it comes to Yovel and Shemitah, the land, the earth is mine. I want to ask you something because there, there's kind of a curiosity that, that just pops up for me about all this. Back at Har Sinai, when it talks about the Yovel, it says, Bimshoch HaYovel, that's when they're going to go up onto the mountain. So we had these nice ideas that the Exodus is somehow leading us back towards the land of Israel, the land of our forefathers, and, and, and maybe there's something to that. 
but I think if we just zoom in locally to the Mount Sinai narrative, let me ask you, Rifki. Remember, God's saying, don't come near the mountain, stay away from the mountain. When it's Yovel time, where are the gonna people all of a sudden going to arrive? Yeah, the, the land at this point, the land is Harsinai itself. It's this place where they're about to meet God. Yeah, exactly. It's so weird. What do you mean? Was was there ever a time you, you, you'd read this and you'd think that the end of the whole Sinai narrative, someone's going to blow a shofar and everyone runs up the mountain now, like, you know, Mount Sinai theme park. Do you remember that scene, Rifki? Because I don't remember that scene. No, if anything, it was it was everyone was suddenly allowed to walk up, come as close as possible, but you were still not allowed to ascend the mountain. Exactly. And why weren't we allowed to go on the mountain at Mount Sinai? Oh, very cool. Because at that point at Har Sinai, you're meant to remember, come close to God, be in a relationship with him, embrace it, but still remember that the mountain is the place of God. Remember God and think of God. And those limitations are also, and also part of that relationship with God. In the words of the verse before, Li Kol Haaretz. Right. Mount Sinai we were standing face to face with the reality wow. that the earth belongs to God. The mountain was on fire because God descended upon it. The the next verses there tell us the whole mountain was was smoking and flaming. You couldn't touch the mountain because it was holy, but you couldn't touch the mountain because you would burn. You would be consumed by God's fire. Right. The mountain, in Rabbi Foreman's language, the mountain is God land. It's God land. Exactly. And now, strangely enough, it seems like maybe, just just maybe, might be referring to something not only about Mount Sinai itself. I'm just wondering out loud here. Where does our Parsha begin? Let's go back to, to Leviticus chapter 25. How do we start that whole Parsha? God is on, on Mount Sinai talking to Moshe. We're at the end of, of, of Leviticus. We've learned about the Mishkan, the priests, all sorts of things. It's been a long time since the story of Matan Torah, the giving of Torah. But where are we now? We're actually still at Har Sinai. But we're not only at Har Sinai. God is transporting us here from Sinai to the reality of what it's going to look like in the land of Israel. And just like at Sinai, we are encountering a reality of Likol Haaretz. In the land of Israel, we're encountering a reality of Likol Haaretz. But there's a difference. In the land of Israel, we're actually able to live in that land. At Mount Sinai, we can't live on Mount Sinai. We actually, maybe, were never even allowed to visit. <laughs> I, I just am wondering if this Meshocha Yovel Hemaya Lubahar, when Yovel is drawn out, they'll ascend the mountain. Perhaps what that means is that one day there will be something called Yovel, and the slaves are going to go free just like you slaves went free. And people are going to return to the place they came from just like you are returning or on your way here to the place that you came from. But what's going to be demanded of us in the land of Israel is different than what's demanded of us at, at Mount Sinai. What's demanded of us at Mount Sinai is to hear God's word. What's demanded of us in the land of Israel is to live a godly life in our relationship with the land. Is to plant the work to plant our seeds, to plow, to cultivate, to harvest, and to give Shabbat to the land, and to make the Shabbat of the land a Shabbat to God as well. It's a way of living in the earth with God at the same time. On some level, that's what we could not do at Mount Sinai. Like you said, that was God land. What it looked like when God lived in the earth at Mount Sinai was a mountain on fire. Flames, smoke, you can't come near it. But the, the laws of Shemitah and ultimately of Yovel are teaching us how do you live 
in the earth in God's land. What do you think about this, Rifki? That's really cool, Ami. That's, little, that's really, really, really cool. Right now, what I'm thinking about is also wondering if the, the Yovel that we have every 50 years in the land of Israel is meant to sort of be a callback to us to remember Har Sinai, mm. for us to remember what it was to be in that intense relationship with God and take a moment to, mm. in the mon- sort of the mundane living of living with our crops and living with our vineyards and things like that, if we're meant to remember what God did for us and remember the, the heightened intensity of that relationship and for that to also be a callback in some way. But I think, Ami, these ideas are fantastic and really leave the with a lot of things that I, I, I need to explore more just in, in my head. But this was really cool, Ami. Thank you so much for bringing me on this on this tour. It's, it's awesome to, to learn with you, Rifki. It's awesome to be here on Parsha Lab. And um, yeah, I, I think if we read through the Parshas and through Bechukotai too, these themes of, of how we live in the land, how we treat others who live in the land, how we identify as people who God took us out of Egypt, they just come up again and again and again. And uh, like you said, there's a lot more to look into here. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening. As always, we really welcome your feedback. Please send us an email at info at alephbeta.org. And if you liked it, please also share it with your friends, share it with your family, rate us five stars on iTunes. And uh, looking forward to hearing all your thoughts and seeing you back next week. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Bye, everybody. Shabbat shalom.